0: Good morning, folks. Are we all okay this morning? It is great to see you this morning. It is great to see you. Two notices. Number one, on the 19th of July, I think it may be June, whatever the Sunday is, the 19th of July, we're having a baptism service. i mean? We know that the enthusiasm, right? I'm sure the enthusiasm to watch the game last night was far greater than that. Last night, last night. We worshiped kings of football. Today, we get to worship the king of kings. Amen? Amen. So, on the 19th, we're going to be having a baptism service. Yes, that's what we want to see. Amazing, which is great. Also, the other notice is, before we open up God's word, is that on um, the 2nd of July, we're going to be having a collective, Cornerstone Collective Men's Conference. It's going to be here at the back. So, if you're a man, you're more than welcome at 10 o'clock it'll start, half nine we'll, we'll have coffee, 10 o'clock we'll start. And I've got a friend of mine called Richard Cogan, who's a pastor of a church down in London. He has planted, I think, over 20 churches across the greater London area. So it'll be wonderful for you guys to come to hear. He's going to open up God's word, he's going to encourage us. He's been a pastor for, I think, nearly 40 years. So just to hear from him, what he's been doing, he's excited to come up to Liverpool, which is um, which is. Great, given that he's a Man United fan, so we'll give him a really, really warm, warm welcome. So can I encourage you, 2nd of July to Saturday, please come, it'll be a wonderful time, that all the guys from the collective are going to be with us. If you've got your Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 21, Exodus 21, and then I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, we praise and we thank you so much that you are God who graciously cares about us, graciously cares about the details of our lives, and graciously cares about your glory and whether or not we display that glory to the world. Father, as we open up your word now and we look at a number of things that for us could be quite difficult for us to read and also understand we ask Lord that you would help us and help us listen help me speak and help us listen from that perspective of knowing that you care for your people you care for humanity that you care about your glory help us to hear that help us to listen to that help us to respond to that in light of what we are reading We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me bring you up to speed. God has saved his people from slavery out of Egypt. He has brought them out of a land of bondage that they were in in for over 400 years through a mediator and a deliverer by the name of Moses. And he's brought them through the Red Sea. He's provided for them in the midst of their grumbling. And he's brought them to Mount Sinai where he meets with them. And where God, we found out over the last two weeks, has given to them his law, his moral law, the Ten Commandments, and Paul took us through them over the last couple of weeks. But in these chapters that we have in front of us, which is chapter 21, right through to chapter 23, verse 19, don't worry guys, we're not going to read them all, God is starting to show how his people apply the law to the various life situations that they find themselves in. So through these regulations, these rules, they're able to apply the law of God, the Ten Commandments that shows them what it is to be the people that he's called them to be. Now what's important for us is to recognize and to see here that yes, folks, the whole of the Bible is profitable for us today. But that doesn't take away from the fact that God was speaking to a specific people at a specific time into a specific culture. As God gave his moral law to his people, he didn't want his people to walk a road of obedience blind. Do not do this, do not do this, do this, do this. Okay, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? How do we we live that out? And in giving of the law, he truly meant that the law, the Ten Commandments, would govern his people. And their lives would actually respond to that and live in light of that. And their interactions with one another will be governed as they obey the law of God, the 10 commandments that he's given them. It's interesting, at least on in the Bible, you read this in Deuteronomy 5, verse one, it says, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. See, God wanted his people to hear his laws, to learn his law, to keep and to do his law. And obedience to God's word set them apart from other nations. Remember in Exodus 19, before he gives the law, he said, you are my treasure possession. Out of all the world that is mine, I treasure you the most. And you will be a a holy nation, a set-apart people, a distinctive people, if you keep my word, if you live in, res- in response and in obedience to what I say and how I tell you to live. And what we have in front of us here is the application of God's law for God's people at that time. And in chapter 24, verse 7, this part of the Bible is called the book of covenant, which means the book of how to live as God's covenant people. This is the law This is what it looks like for you, Israel. But before we look at some of the specific applications of the law for Israel and consider the timeless principles for us, there's a few things that I think is important for me to mention for us to see. The first one is this. These rules and regulations are given in the context of God's grace. In the context of God's grace. Folks, so often when we start reading about laws we forget that God is gracious and that he's already saved us. Amen? Remember Exodus 19? I have saved you. I plucked you up like an eagle on eagle's wings. I've already saved you. Now obey me. It's not obey me and I will save you. I love you, therefore obey me. It's not obey me and I will love you. So when we read these things, these are rules and regulations, applications of God's law that are given in the context of God's grace. And we see that in what is happening. Do you remember last week when Paul was taking us through the Ten Commandments, the last bit of chapter 20, turn over it. What we see there, that God provides for God's people a mediator, chapter 20, verses 18 to 21. A mediator, see God's people saw the terrifying nature of of God and they they saw the lightning and they saw the thunder and they didn't want to go into the presence of God. So they they said, Moses, you go, you go and engage with God and you speak to us and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us because because of who he is, we will die. And God said, no, 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 don't be fearful of, of, of the Lord. But they needed a mediator, somebody to go into the presence of God, to represent the people to God and represent God to the people. He provides for them a mediator. Folks, in the midst of our sin, we cannot come into the presence of a holy God. He has provided a mediator for us. Somebody that stepped out of the glory into the darkness to save us so that we could be brought by him into the presence of God. We need a mediator. We see at the end of chapter 20 there, verses 22 and 26, he promises his presence. This whole thing about an altar and things being sacrificed on an altar. God says, I will come to you and I will bless you. So what we see is God gives his law and he says, look, I want someone to mediate and I will be with you. I will be present amongst you. We have a God who has left the home, throne room of heaven, stepped into the darkness. And when Lord Jesus ascends, he sends God the Holy Spirit to him amongst his people. Do you see the grace of that? Do you see the grace? We have a mediator and we have God's presence amongst us. So God's presence is promised amongst his people and there is a mediator who represents the people to God and the God to people. people. And God makes himself known through presence and through his word. And God wants his people to know him. He wants his people to know his character. He wants his people to live a good life under his good life-giving word. And God moves towards his people. And then you have all these rules and regulations. Chapter 21, right through to the middle of chapter 23. But I want to skip over them a minute because on the other side, that book end, the book of covenant, we actually see God's leading and protection. If you look at 23 verses 20 to 33, what you see, you see the story. And next week, um, Carl's going to be taking us through that a little bit more in detail. But what God promises, if you obey my people, the angel of the Lord will lead you and will be with you and he will protect you. See, there is a protection from God for those who walk in obedience. The wonderful thing is, because Jesus walked in obedience and we have faith in him, we are protected and led by God. Amen? What a wonderful grace. And then after that, he promises all of this with the sealing of blood. This book of covenants is sealed with blood. The Lord Jesus Christ has sealed our covenant with the Father by his own blood. So all these rules and regulations, folks, all come in the context of a God who is gracious towards Israel and a God who is gracious towards us. Amen? In that context. It's all given in the midst of his grace, his gracious salvation, a mediator who represents his presence amongst his people, protection and leading, and this promise is sealed with blood. The context of law is always given in the context of grace. Number two, that these rules and regulations were to help God's people apply the law in a given context and culture, but they were not context and culture-driven. They were not context and culture-driven. It's important to know that there were other laws. Other laws have been written during ancient times and culture, and they would have covered issues to do with murder and issues to do with theft Now, there would have been similarities between God's law and the other ancient laws that have been given. However, there were major differences, striking differences because God's law was mainly given to bring him glory but also to bring protection to the most vulnerable people in society, specifically women, orphans, and the poor. See, the cultural understanding of women of orphans and the poor were not the driver, but rather God's heart for his people to love their neighbor was the driver. It wasn't, there's lots of poor people, therefore let's put a law in place. There are lots of women, therefore let's put a law in place. Now, God called us to love each other as we love ourselves. But because of our sinfulness, we don't do that. So God brings in a law to reflect his love towards us and our love should be bound within that for those who are our neighbor. Hence the provision to protect the most vulnerable in society. Folks, these laws were countercultural; They were not culturally driven. Another way to see this is that God's intention for these laws was to be applied in the specific culture without being culturally driven is the difference in how the moral law and the applied rules and regulations were written and received. Now, let me unpack this for you. In Exodus 31, we are told that Moses comes down from the mountain and he has two tablets of stone that have the Ten Commandments on them. And it tells us there that they have been written by the finger of God. But the rules and regulations that we're reading here came from God, but they were written down by Moses on parchment, not stone. Okay. So some of the commentators suggest that this helps us see that the rules and regulations of the book of covenants, which were written on parchment, did not have the eternal bond stroke force as the moral law, but rather they are the implications and application given to a specific culture that could look different at different times and in different contexts. That being said, they stress that the implication and the application flow from the eternal bond and force of the Ten Commandments, the moral law, as they were written directly by the hand of God and sealed on stone. You with me? Now, the Book of Covenant contains principles that we can still apply today, but the specific pronouncements and specific penalties were for the nation of Israel. Folks, the Ten Commandments were given as universal attributes, and they were written by God on stone. And the book of covenant that we're going to look at now dealt with specific situations, given legal precedents that leaders could use when settling disputes and situations, which we would call today case law. If any of you have done any law, what you'll see is that they try and figure out an application of the law, often in light of how it's been applied in the past. On another case. Well, this happened in this case, so therefore, let's use that as case law as a great way of applying the law that governs that. And this can be used by us as case law, not that we cover it word for word, but it helps us see the principles, the overarching themes of the Ten Commandments. And then with God's wisdom, we seek to apply them in our context today. What this shows, folks, is that God is interested in how we live. That's what it shows. God is interested in how we live today in 2022. God is interested in in how we engage with each other in different cultural understandings today. And he wants us to engage with his law in the context of today that gives him glory, living under, and and we are to seek to, to apply them directly to our given time and our given situations. Number three, we have to be aware when we look at these of our chronological and geographical snobbery, which blinds us to what God is showing and teaching. J. O. Packer, who's a theologian that lived, an English theologian that lived in Canada, described the age that he was living in, and the age that we live in, and the age that everyone finds themselves in. He describes the heretical spirits of the age, and he says this. This is how we think. The newer is truer. Only what what is recent is decent. Every shift of ground is a step forward, and every latest word must be hailed as the last word on its subject. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. Basically what that means is we are better than anyone that has come before us and we sit in a better seat compared to others in the past. That's what it means. We understand more, we get more. And C.S. Lewis said that chronologic, the chronological snobbery is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is, on that account, discredited. Then he goes on to explain it like this. He says, this is wrong. Because you must find out why something went out of date. Was it ever refuted? And if so, by whom, where, and how, conclusively? Or did it merely die away as fashions do? If the latter, this tells us nothing about its truth or falsehood. From seeing this, one passes to the realization that our own age is also a period, a certainly, And certainly has, like all periods, its own characteristic illusions. They are, li- are likeliest to lurk in those widespread assumptions which are so ingrained in the age that no one dares to attack or feels it necessary to defend them. Chronological snobbery. Folks, can I say this? We are not better than anybody that has gone before. If anything, the advancements of technology have just enabled us to be more sinful. This snobbery is also seen in how we view other places in the world. Geographical snobbery, where we've been born, where we live. We look from the West and we look down on what we think is primitive thinking and living of other people in other parts of the world. Folks, can I say this? This snobbery is sinful. It's racist. It's arrogant. And the devil will use this to distract from God's word and God's meaning, meaning, especially in things that we're gonna look at now. So in light of that, let's have a look at some of the rules and regulations in the Book of the Covenant that were specific applications for Israel but are timeless principles for us. And I want us to see how these applications also show us the character of God, okay? Are you with me? Are you with me? I had to do all of that to lay into this because as soon as you read something like this, slavery, bang, straight away, that's where we go, okay? Okay, so the first one is this. In the book of law, we see that God is a God of justice. Turn to 21, chapter 21, verses 22 to 25. Let me read it. When my men strive together, that... Means come together in a conflict, and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out. But there is no harm. The one who hits her shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Folks, the one thing that we all agree on is that people want justice. Agreed? People want justice. The issue that we don't agree on, and you will find differing opinions, is what actually constitutes justice. What should be punished? What should be the punishment for an accidental death? Does murder deserve the death penalty? Folks, even the justice system that we live in doesn't have the answers. Someone can be found guilty of a crime by the jury, but then it can be thrown out by the judge on a technicality. Within the book of covenant, this is what it's called. The the book of covenant, God gives us case studies to help us. It doesn't give us answers to every questions, but these examples do help. And in verses 12 to 21 of chapter 21, he gives examples of capital crime. Capital crime. Crimes that warrant the death penalty. Now in our context, in our country, there will be mixed opinions regarding capital punishment for many reasons. And I don't have time to unpack them. However what we do see is the seriousness God puts on the taking of a human life and the dishonoring of human beings. As you read through the section 21, chapter 21, 12, 36, please read all this when you go home, you see the differing punishments that relate to the different circumstances from capital crime to accidental harm due to negligence. And the verses that I've read, verses 21, 22, 25, we see an innocent bystander. Don't we, we see a pregnant woman being hurt? Two guys have come together. Something has occurred. The woman's been hurt. And it says that if she is harmed, and as a result of her harm, a baby is born. So we've seen it, haven't we, that ladies can be knocked, they can be hit, and then it triggers the birth. If the child is okay, whoever hit her needs to be fined. But if there is harm, whatever the level of harm, that level of harm will determine the punishment. Hence, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, Folks, we will always find the issues of justice difficult because we view it from a broken position. We are broken. And we will always find the issues of justice difficult because we want to be judge, jury, and executioner. So for us, any justice that is imposed often can never be enough or can be too much. But what we see here in these case studies is that God is a God of justice. He's a God of justice. Psalm 140 verse 2 says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. For the needy. Folks, the whole redemption story of the gospel is about the justice of God. That sin will be dealt with. Justice will be saved. That the right justice will be saved for all the wrongs that have been done. Folks, what I want you to hear, what I want, because often when we think about justice, we never think about the, justice, the, the ju- justice that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve. We always think about the people outside of us, all those people that seem to get away with it. When we sit in a seat, that we deserve the punishment of God, but God in his graciousness actually brings that justice upon his son instead of us. He deals with it. See, the right justice will be saved for all wrong things that have been done. Folks, please hear me. Death is not the ticket out of justice. Death is the door to the courtroom of the judge of all. So when certain people Who, after their death, it comes out that they have done horrendous things. Or those that seem to have got away with so much. And we think that is so unjust. They have not not stood for the crimes that they have committed. Let me tell you this death is not the ticket away from justice, death is the door to the courtroom of the judge of all. God will judge. And God will judge to the level of crime and pain that has been committed. I don't need to name names, but I know names that people are thinking of. They will be judged if they had not received the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in that he was judged in their place. The issue is this, do I receive the justice for my sin or do I accept and trust by faith that Jesus has taken that for me? God is a God of justice. We see in the book of Covenant that God is a God of compassion. Chapter 22, verses 21 to 27, turn there. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fearless. If you lend money to any of my people... With you who is poor, you shall not be like the moneylender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's clothes in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his blood. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Within the book of covenants, there are case laws that show that God is full of compassion particularly to the disadvantaged and the defenseless. And these laws, folks, deal with the weakest and most vulnerable of people. We see there straight away, you must not oppress the sojourner, the person in your country who is not part of your country, the person who is traveling through, passing through, the person that doesn't know the language, the people who don't know the rules of the culture. Do not oppress them. Do not oppress them. See, the people of God were not to take advantage of foreigners. And God appeals to their own experience. You lived 400 years as foreigners, and you were taken advantage of. You were oppressed. You will not be like that. See, this is countercultural because in these days, if you were a foreigner, you were treated as an alien. You were treated differently. Folks, this is a timeless principle, isn't it? We in our city, by God's grace, have been able to welcome hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world. We've had people come from all over the world fleeing all sorts of difficulties. They've been welcomed into the life of this church, have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and are sitting here today. The countless principle of those who come from other nations, those who are different, those that understand, we are not to oppress. And can I also say this? We can oppress people subconsciously we're not talking about the conscious suppressing. also. We need to be aware that we can subconsciously oppress by the way that we speak, by the way that we don't include, by the way that we make it difficult, by the way we don't open our homes when people need somewhere to live, by the way that we don't open up our meal tables when those that might be a little bit strange and it might be difficult with language. Folks, we are to be countercultural people We should not oppress those who aren't for our kingdom. We should be people who we live in a fortunate position where we can open up our doors and our homes and our churches and our city and say, come in, there is refuge for us. Why? Because we serve a God who is compassionate. He goes on to say there, doesn't he? You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. See, folks, widows not only suffered the loss of a lover, but they also suffered the loss of a livelihood. And that was just accepted by the culture. Just get on with it. They had no one to support them. They struggled to survive. And this was also true for orphans, especially those who lost their fathers. They had no one to protect them from the injustices. The only person that could protect them was God. So God was showing them an application. This is how you need to show your compassion. And he establishes these laws to protect widows and orphans and also for the poor. He goes on, doesn't he, when he talks about lending money, when people needed to lend money, they would have to put collateral down. That's what happened. So if you went and you, had to, you were in debt and you had to lend money as a sort of deposit, a collateral, people could only give what they had and most of them had cloaks. And a money lender would keep the cloak and the person would realize during the day that they had nothing to cover them and they'd really ju- realize during the night that they owed money because they were freezing, because they had nothing. Jesus is saying, look, if somebody lends money from you, yes, you may take their coat, as collateral, keep that during the day, but often even give it back to them. Because they'd be freezing, they need something. Israel, you're gonna be different. And then he also says, if you lend money, don't put interest on it. Don't put interest on it. Folks, when people fall on hard times, we like God ought to show compassion, not take advantage. See, Jesus takes it a step further in Luke's gospel. And he says this, that we are to give to friends and even give to enemies expecting nothing in return. Nothing in return. See, Jesus not only calls God's people Israel to pass up on interest, but to give without the desire to have anything back. Now, folks, you might say, well, you know, if I lent somebody a tenner, I'm not going to put like 25% interest on that. Or have I lend somebody a hundred quid? But you know what, folks? We can actually in exact interest in our hearts. You could lend somebody some money, hundred quid, say, with the, the intention of giving it and not expecting it back. And then a few months down the road, you see that they walk into church with a new pair of trainees. And you're like, hang on a minute. I thought you were hard up. I give you 100 quid, and you're walking in with a nice set of 110s from the night store. You've just exacted interest. Even though you didn't say you expected it. Folks, a compassionate God expects nothing. We also need to be compassionate people. Amen? We see that God is a God of freedom, and God is a God of renewal, chapter 21 verses 1 to 6. Folks, when we read through these rules and regulations, like I said earlier, we will struggle with them because of our cultural context, but also because of our misunderstanding that comes from history. And one of those areas is in regards to the reading about slavery. In the book of covenant, we see God deals with the relationship between masters and slaves. Let's read this together. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall bear her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an oar, and he shall be his slave forever. Now, firstly, I want to be clear that what we read here is not slavery as we would understand it. Slavery that we would understand it from recent history. You only have to go to the Maritime Museum to see the Slavery Museum and all the history, and we see what our city was built upon. It's not talking about, well, it's not talking about the slavery that Israel suffered. And folks, I want to be clear here that the Bible does not defend the practice of slavery as we in our culture and context understand. Verses 16 of chapter 21, it says this, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Shall be put to death. So the slavery of Israel, the transportation and slavery of millions of Africans, and the modern-day trafficking and slave trade of people is an offense to God, and he finds it abhorrent. It's an offense to him. See, the slavery mentioned here is better translated bond servant, a servant that is bound to a master. And folks, nowhere in the Bible is slavery defended, but servitude is expected. Servitude does continue. The people would work for others and the rules and regulations that God is putting out were given to help the relationship between the masters and servants and to eliminate abuse between masters and servants. See, there are a few things that we need to see. That this service was voluntary. See, people chose to serve often to pay off a debt. They had debts, they had issues, mismanagement of life, mismanagement of money. So they go to to a master and they would say, could I come and work for you to pay off the debt? It wasn't that someone was taken from their home. It wasn't that someone was bought and sold. Someone voluntarily steps in to serve the master, to pay off a debt that they owed. And this service we see there was not permanent, but it was temporary. You see there in verse 2 that you would serve as a servant for six years and on the seventh year you'll be allowed to go free. You'll be allowed to go free. And then we see here that this service was a bond of freedom. So you weren't stepping in to be enslaved, but actually you were stepping in to serve to be free. As I said, they, they voluntarily went in to pay off a debt. So as they stepped from a life of no money, mismanagement, they stepped into the house and a life that, where they enjoyed the blessings of a household, ran by a good master. They entered in as irresponsible men and grew to become people who could manage their own affairs. And folks, the goal wasn't perpetual bondage, but responsible independence. Responsible independence. See, this service was a new life of repaid debt, a new life of flourishing, a new life of freedom and growth that were experienced under the rule of a good master who lived according to the rules and regulations of God. Does that sound familiar? See, God not only is a God of freedom and renewal, he is also a God of protection and flourishing. Let's carry on reading verses 7 to 11. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, he should not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does, and if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. At First, this law, folks, doesn't it, seems unfair and raises many, many questions. Why did God allow his people to sell daughters into slavery? I actually think there's some positive in that. To be honest. Especially when you walk into my daughter's room. It's horrendous. It's just like, go and live somewhere else, will you? I'm joking. <laughs> but why did God allow this? Because that's how we read it. Again, we need to understand that that we need to have an awareness of the cultural context. And even though we don't know all the details like this, the law here in regards to servanthood had a benevolent purpose. What these verses describe is a form of arranged marriage, folks, which I know sounds strange to us in the West, but has been common in many parts of the world for most of human history. So when a man sold his daughter, he wasn't trying to get rid of her and he wasn't trying to exploit her, but rather he was trying to improve the prospects of her life. Because without that, there were no prospects in that that culture, in that country. See, a poor man would sell his daughter into a household of a rich man in the hope that she would become a permanent member of that household. She would enter into a conditional form of servitude, hoping that eventually she might marry her master or even marry her master's son. Now, obviously, that form of regulation, that form of arrangement was also subject to abuse. So God, God brings in these regulations. See, a bad master might take advantage of a female servant by treating her harshly, even selling her on to slave traders or even releasing her from service, which may sound strange, But if a woman was not in the context of her home and then was released from the context of a household, she was on her own, very vulnerable to all the dangers of the culture. Therefore, it was not safe for her to go free. But in order to flourish, she needed to live within the community of the family. So this law brought three specific protections for female servants. Who might I add? Had No protection with any other culture during this time. So the first one is this. The first was if the master didn't want her service at all, he wasn't able to do whatever he wanted. Like she came, she might have been terrible. Like she might have been a terrible servant. And it might have been like, oh, she's terrible. I don't want her anymore. He wasn't able then to sell her on. He had to return her to her family. Whereas in other cultures and other contexts, they just sell them on because they were property and they were trade. See, maidservants would have a probationary, uh, probationary period, and if it didn't work out, she could return back to her family. It was so countercultural, and it was so there to protect women. And if you notice verse 8 of chapter 21, it wasn't the woman's fault if it didn't work out, it was the master's fault because he'd lost faith in her. See that protection? Again, countercultural. It was never a man's fault, it was always the woman's fault. For in God's law, no. You take responsibility. If it's not worked out as the master, that's on you. If you're the leader, it doesn't work out. That's on you. Folks, if you are a husband and it doesn't work out, that's on you. See, the second was if a master was pleased with her and wanted her to marry his son. In the first case, verse 9, he needed to treat her as her daughter. As his daughter, so if he sees the servant, I want to marry you. straight away. Even in the engagement, I'm gonna, I'm gonna include you as part of the family. I've spoken at countless weddings, and we were at a wedding on Friday. We were at another wedding on Saturday, and every father of the bride, every father of the bride, will say to the son, "Welcome you into the family." And the and the father would always say, um, the father of the groom would say, probably not in public because they don't get to do a speech, but they would welcome the daughter into the family. It's interesting here, as soon as the engagement, you're part of the family. You need to be treated as part of the family, welcomed in as a full member of the family. This was a form of adoption. You were going to enjoy all the privilege of not only being part of this household, but being part of this family. A protection. And then thirdly, no matter what happened, if it didn't work out, if the son of the master married another wife, verse 10 they still had the responsibility to provide food, clothing, and marital rights. And if they failed to provide, she, would walk, she could walk free from service. And this was to prevent women being taken advantage of and then disregarded. Now, folks, as you read verses 3 and 4, you might also struggle with, well, why can't, if a woman has married one of the other servants during her service, leave with her husband when he is allowed to go free? Do you read that? Why is she the property of the master? See, this also was for their protection. Remember, a man voluntarily stepped into service because of the mismanagement of his money, because of the mismanagement of his life. Who was to know whether or not he learned his lesson? So imagine if he steps out of service, the protection steps out of that, and then takes his family with him, Completely mismanages life again. She's out on her own. The children are out on their own. See, clearly that must have happened regularly. So God puts in a law in order to protect the vulnerable in that community. Folks, critics sometimes say that the Bible has negative attitudes towards women. Even some Christians feel the same. And even some of us find it hard when we read a face value to defend what the Bible says. However, in light of the cultural treatment of women during the day, the laws of God were put in place to protect them, to love them, and also to give women the opportunity to flourish in in a world where the opposite was true. See, the truth is that God has always loved his daughters. He's always loved his daughters. See, my conviction is this. The freedom that women have today in our culture is not because it's been culturally driven. It's because God God in his goodness and his kindness and by his grace has penetrated the hearts of people to see that. See, God has always created the atmosphere and the platform for women to flourish in the context of the cultures that they find themselves in. And he makes lead with his word and his grace and calls his people to be the people who do this. Now, folks, this protection and this flourishing can be applied differently today. We know that. But this doesn't mean the principle has changed. In this case, I think it points to marriage. I think it points to marriage. I think it points to how we engage in the context of marriage. I was speaking of marriage the other day. I'm speaking of another one next week. and we do live in a different time, in a more privileged time, I guess, in this area, that the rights of women in our culture and in our context are better. There is a broader and cultural protection and opportunity for women which is right. However, this doesn't change the principle of a husband's responsibility to love, protect, and create the atmosphere for his wife to flourish. It doesn't diminish the responsibility of a father to love, to protect, and create the atmosphere for his daughters to flourish. It doesn't diminish the responsibility for Christian brother to create the atmosphere for his sisters in Christ to feel safe and to flourish. See, a husband has a responsibility to ensure his wife gets what she needs. And a husband who fails in his provision, protection, and physical expression of love violates the law of God. We have a God who is a God of protection and flourishing. Let us never be people who do the opposite. And finally, we have a God who is a loving master. Verses 21. Verses 5 to 6. See, you see there in verse 2, servants were free to leave in the seventh year. They were free to go. After 6, out they went. But there were occasions where sometimes they didn't want to leave. See, the love, because of the love of the care of their master, the servant wanted to say, you see that verse 5? But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Do you see that? He wants to say, one, because he loves his master. But also, he wants to say, because he loves his wife and his children. That could be one of these guys who mismanaged his life has done six years and knows that on his own, isolated, actually he will bring more pain to his wife and his children. Where actually to stay within the household of the master means that there's the protection and the love that will help him love his wife and his children well. Folks, fellas, can I just say this? Do not isolate yourself from the place of God. Do not isolate yourself from the people of God. If you isolate yourself from the place of God and isolate yourself from the people of God, you're not only damaging yourself, you're damaging those that God has given you to love and protect. That is so true. I've seen it hundreds of times. Please do not pull yourself away and think that my own little, this is enough. No, no. We need to be in the context of community under the presence and loving reign of God as people work out this together. Please don't be like like this guy. I love the master and I love the household so much. I'm not stepping away. I'm staying in. Even if, because I know if I step away, it all goes to pear-shaped. Don't be like that. Be a guy who loves the master and stays. But it's the same for us. And the question is this, what a loving master What must he be like in order for someone to say, I will stay serving. I will save doing this. What a loving master in order for someone to say, I'm not going to step out of freedom, that actually I'm going to stay and I'm going to pledge to serve the master who has loved me. And not only that, I'm I'm willing to do that publicly. I say that I love you. I'm going to stay. And I'm going to nail my ear to the door to prove it. That's commitment, isn't it? No one's required to do that here, folks. Don't worry. That's commitment. See, the reason why it had to be done in public was to ensure that their master was not taking advantage and forcing someone to stay longer than six years. What kind of master would deserve so much love? He must have been good, kind. He must have took care of his servant's needs. He must have loved them with his whole heart. And the servants must have loved him in return. Rather than looking for freedom somewhere else, the servants have found freedom in the master's house. If a servant loves a master who takes care of him and treats him like a friend, imagine what a servant would do for a master who saved him at the cost of his own life. Folks, we have a loving master Why would we want to serve anyone or anything else? Amen. So many of us are trying to, we don't realize we are, we're trying to run out of God, his presence, his people, because we think freedom's found there when true freedom is found in the midst of the master's house. See, the difference here is that before we were servants, in fact, when we were enemies, it was God who declared his love for us publicly. And it wasn't his ear that was pierced to seal that promise, but the body and blood of his own son, Jesus. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, we have a loving, kind, self-giving master, and our response should be, because we have freedom in his house, is to hold him and to serve him forever we as paul put it in his epistles as you read through them we're bond servants we're bound to him and the freedom he has purchased for us so should, we should listen to his voice we should serve him gladly we should live out the principles of his law that display to the world that we have a god who is a god of justice that we have a god who is a god of compassion That we have a God who is a God of freedom and renewal. That we have a God who is a God about protection and flourishing. And we have a God who is not a tyrant, but we have a God who is a loving master. Amen? And the law of God, the Ten Commandments that He has given us, by the wisdom that comes from Him in and through His Holy Spirit, we are able to apply the truth of what it means to love Him with our heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's going to look different. It's going to feel different. There are going to be different difficulties, but let us hold true that God's word stands, and his law is good for us, and we get to serve him and love him and reach out to others in the context of the grace that we have all received. Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross, not the post of a house. That Jesus Christ's blood confirmed his love for us. And because he loved us, we can now love him. Because he saved us, we can now save him. Because he has fulfilled the law, we are free from the law. And get to obey in the midst of the wonderful grace that is shown by him. His body was broken so that we could be made whole. His blood was spilled so that we could be washed clean. Folks... What a Savior we have. Jesus paid it all. And we get to live lives that display his glory for the good of other people and for our good also. Amen. I'm going to pray. And after I've prayed, we're going to pass the bread and pass the wine. Can I say this, folks? If you are not a Christian, please let this pass. Please let this pass. This is something that we get to do as those that are part of the household of God. But please be assured of this, as we eat and as we drink and as we pray one with another and thank God for his goodness and his grace, the master of the house is standing, calling you in, beckoning you in, saying, come and be part of this household. Come and be part of what I can give you. Come and be part of true freedom that is found in knowing what I've done for you And what I call you to do and live as for your good and for the good of other people. If you're not a believer, just look as the bread goes past and the the wine goes past and said, and, and consider this, that Jesus died in your place, taking the justice that you deserve for your sin and brokenness. And the shedding of his blood washes you clean so you do not stand as guilty before God. You stand innocent in the blood of Christ. Thank him, trust him, then eat, then drink, and be welcomed into the household of the living God, that kingdom that will last forever. And all God's people say together, amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you and praise you for all that you've done. We thank you and we praise you for your kindness to us, that you are a kind master that displayed your love for us before even when we were sinners. Help us, Lord, we pray, for your glory's sake to serve you, to be faithful servants, to be loving servants, to love each other well, whether that's in the context of marriage, whether that's the context of friendship, whether that's the context of church community, help us to love each other well and reflect your glory. And as we eat and as we drink, we thank you for what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.